One of the aspects that we haven't particularly emphasized in this retreat is the importance of generosity and sila as we're doing this practice. Dana or generosity is important because it moves the mind away from self-reference. So having a generous attitude towards your sangha here, to have a generous attitude towards the people that you work with, the people in the lunch line, the person that, that you uh, experience disturbing you in the hall, this generous attitude, it actually allows for more calm to arise, for the mind to become more settled and therefore to be able to be more collected and unified. So generosity, quite important. And we can choose in any given moment to be generous. But to do so, we have to be mindful that that is one of the things that we are practicing. That we intend to be generous and our attitude towards our fellow yogis or maybe it's something about the, the way Spirit Rock is doing things or the way a teacher is doing something. To be generous in your attitude. This will spill over, this will show up in your life and it is a cornerstone of practice. Likewise, sila, when we uh, take what's not freely given or we, uh, uh, we get into a kind of split with ourselves over sexuality or over whatever it might be, we do find ourselves a little bit uh, uh, at odds with ourselves, pushing against ourselves, or like there's, you know, there's two parts of us and we can't know about this part when we're trying to practice, or uh, various other kinds of separation that occurs. And this fragmenting, this splitting also gets in the way of our collecting and unifying the mind. In many of the, the teachings of the teachers, they emphasize this, uh, this cultivation of generosity and sila before they will even allow you to start to do either the samatha practice, of the samadhi practice of concentration or the Vipassana practice of mindfulness. So just to uh, keep that in mind and notice that in regards to both the generosity, this feeling of generosity, and in regards to the ethical behavior, it does require mindfulness. So we never really in our practice are away from the mindfulness. We may not be emphasizing it, but we're not really ever away from mindfulness. One of the things that we've mentioned at various points that we can be aware of in this process of our minds becoming collected and unified is the stillness. Stillness in the room, which is really great, isn't it? to have that support of the stillness in the room, stillness in our own body, and then stillness in the mind. As we become more aware of that stillness, we can more consciously use it in our practice. And as we start to bring our attention to the stillness, there are subtleties and layers and aspects and uh, uh, phenomena around stillness that arise. Once again, in order to cultivate, to utilize this existence, this possibility, this uh, uh, ground of stillness, it requires that we be mindful. So. Whichever way we turn and practice, this mindful of what's true now in some way. I wanted to read you the, the opening quote from uh, my teacher, 
Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, Ajahn Chah, that, uh, that both uh, uh, Sally and Steve, I believe, have made reference to in previous talks. And it has to do with this uh, relationship of mindfulness and stillness. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So, through the mindfulness and through letting things be, which is in one sense a an understanding of what mindfulness is, we come to stillness. One way to get there in this last seven days of intensive practice together, we have come to this stillness through our one-pointedness. Through once and once and once again coming to just our single object of meditation. These two ways of getting there in the end, tend to overlap a lot and for uh, practical purposes become one. We are at a point in the retreat where we're going to be expanding the use of our concentration insofar as you choose to do so. So it's a little shift that uh, I'm introducing tonight and we'll be exploring more fully tomorrow morning. For those of you who, who, who want to expand out in this way, we have seen how important mindfulness is in concentration practice because without it we can't balance these factors, the factors, the seven factors of enlightenment. We also can't connect to the breath without being mindful of the breath. We also have to have mindfulness to know that we're sustaining the practice. We also use the mindfulness to remember that what we're about that we want to be connecting to the breath in the first place. I asked a, a, a yogi today to really start practicing when that particular yogi walked in the door, to start being mindful of the intention to be with the breath as soon as, as the yogi walked in the door. I often do such a practice myself because despite our thinking we know what we're doing, as you've seen over and over again, you completely forget. You go off fantasizing, planning. You don't remember that you're intending to be with the breath. So this remembering our intention and remembering how to connect to our intention. So uh, the mindfulness plays such a part in that. But it's equally true, and this is where this expanding out that we're going to be doing between now and the end of the retreat insofar as you choose to participate in it, we see that it's equally true that the collected and unified mind, that the calm mind, that samadhi is equally important in practicing mindfulness. It takes a collected and unified mind to investigate our experience. Otherwise, we get lost in the content of it. and We don't investigate it at all. So instead of seeing the basic parts of our experience, we get lost in the story like getting lost in a movie. This collected and unified 
mind can be momentarily collected and unified and you have had endless, endless moments of your mind being collected and unified momentarily. And that collected and unified momentarily, that, that momentary concentration is sufficient for doing mindfulness practice. So although you've been practicing at a much deeper level, in order to get there, you've really been building up this capacity to be momentarily concentrated on any particular object that arises. It's one of the hidden benefits of doing the concentration practice. Since we're not trying to do that, we don't even notice that we're practicing that and that makes it actually easier to do. The amount of concentration can also be what is termed access concentration, where the mind is uh, so collected and unified that the hindrances are at bay. In contrast, in this momentary concentration, the hindrances are there, they're all over the place. But when we have this level of access, the hindrances are at bay. There, there's some sheltering from it. Or we can do mindfulness practice from one of the jhana states. And we'll see that, uh, and, and not tonight, but in a talk that Steve will be given in a few days, that the, the quality and the presence of these various jhana uh, factors that we've talked about, these five jhana factors, make a real difference in terms of insight as we progress through to a deeper uh, level of insight. And we'll be looking at that in some detail. So at all three levels, this uh, momentary concentration, having this access concentration where the hindrances are at bay, or this uh, level of first jhana where there's really a kind of absorption to it. We, we can use all of this in practicing our mindfulness. It's also, at least in my experience, true that in practicing samadhi or concentration, it helps with our faith. We start to see that in fact we can develop our relationship with our own mind. There's um, a lot of hidden belief and sometimes quite overt belief that we really are a complete slave to our mind. We may come here and we're practicing but we don't really have that much faith that we can really work with our minds. And in uh, the mindfulness practice you know you can get into some times where um, there doesn't seem much reinforcement of your own empowerment because you know the, the, the hindrances have you so much of the time or whatever or you just you're, you just don't feel as though you're being mindful at all but in doing this concentration practice you've had many many moments when you've seen that you have this intention to be with the breath and you've been with the breath no matter how short the time so that builds a kind of confidence whether or not consciously recognized. And for, to whatever degree you've had these moments of stillness over some prolonged period of time, whether it's five minutes or uh, an hour and a half or three hours, that too, that's really like a deeper level still of knowing, yeah, I can be in relation to my mind and it shows up. I can, I can, I can have some participation here. I can co-create my own subjective experience. I get to co-participate in what my subjective experience is. I'm not just uh, uh, dangling at the end of the string of my experience. We've also seen that when we get concentrated there's a kind of stability that comes into the mind that stability of mind is so useful in doing mindfulness practice. Why? Because when you're doing mindfulness practice some object arises and becomes the predominant experience 
And in mindfulness practice, we investigate the predominant experience. And how do we do that? We connect with it, the vitaka. We sustain our attention on it, the vichara. These qualities that we've used in concentration are essential for being able to investigate our experience in mindfulness. As has been said repeatedly, concentration develops this malleable mind. The longer you work with concentration, the more you're going to experience that that's true. Again, it's one of these uh, often unrecognized beliefs we have that the mind is rigid, that it's not malleable. But as we work with it, it becomes more malleable and we discover that its inherent nature is in fact malleable. It's the conditioned that's made our minds so rigid or so compulsive and so not seemingly malleable. We've also spent all this time, uh, time after time, moment after moment, of uh, developing this quality of relaxed attention. Being able to relax the body, being able to relax the mind, and then to relax that spotlight that we call attention, that a faculty of the mind that focuses on something in order to know it. Relaxed attention. In doing mindfulness, having relaxed attention is so useful. It allows us to not be swamped by the hindrances that arise in the mind because our attention's relaxed and then suddenly we're, uh, we're dealing with a, a, a big desire we have about the future. Some longing, some longing. But our, if our attention is relaxed, then we don't get so reactive to it. We go, oh, what's this? Because we're not, we're not uh, in, a, in a, a, a compulsive kind of reactivity to it before we even get a chance. So very useful. Likewise, the breath is what many of us use and certainly what we teach as uh, one of the most common anchors to use in mindfulness practice. And you've been with the breath all of this time. And then the very existence of calm that comes from the collected and unified mind is so useful. Again, it, it uh, stops the mind from being so reactive to the hindrances and it also can then keep the hindrances at bay. So in all of these different ways, calm really supports our mindfulness practice. From my way of looking at it, and there's certainly uh, many different views and it's taught many different ways, I view the, the mental quality of calm or concentration of uh, 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 one of the factors along with mindfulness, which is another mental factor, mental quality if you like, mental state if you like, whatever word you want to use, that uh, taken together allow the practice of vipassana, the invitation, the inquiry into insight as to how things really are. How things really are. And so they, they're partners. They're partners uh, working together to bring insight. In the Buddha's Satipatthana Sutta, which is his instructions on mindfulness, he lists four mental qualities that apply to every bit of our experience. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, he divides every, every experience we can possibly have into four categories. The body experiences, the arising of, of pleasant or unpleasant in the mind, the mental states that arise, the, the, the mental mind, the mind states that arise, and, uh, and then the, the dhammas or the qualities of mind that arise, and, um, and like the hindrances or like the, the seven factors of enlightenment or so forth, these kinds of uh, perceptions of what is in various levels. And so uh, this whole spectrum of, 
of the, of the four foundations. There's four qualities that he says is necessary to be able to be with what is and anywhere on the spectrum. The first of those is the diligence, the quality of diligence. The second is uh, what's termed clear knowing. And this clear knowing is uh, having a knowing, uh, it's sometimes defined as being able to see what's true in this moment, to be able to uh, uh, perceive it correctly. And then the third is mindfulness. And the fourth he calls uh, uh, free from desires and discontent, which is how he is describing a concentrated mind, a mind that's free from desires and discontent, a mind that's free from being swamped by, overwhelmed by the hindrances of mind so that we get we couldn't see clearly. So just to read you how he says this. Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of nibbana, namely the four satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to a body, a monk abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the feelings, he abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent. In regard to the mind, he contemplates the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent. So this uh, importance of mindfulness and concentration working together in order to know our experience. Without those two, we can't clearly see. It also does take diligence. And this uh, this uh, Requirement of diligence we've seen is needed in doing the concentration practice. We have to be diligent. We have to have a certain amount of energy. We have to apply ourselves over and over again to do concentration. And so it is in mindfulness. So it is in knowing how things are. There's two things about diligent that um, uh, I would say maybe you've had some experience of as you've worked with concentration. One, as Sally was saying last night, diligence is not grim. Happiness being the proximate cause of concentration, as we've said a number of times on this retreat. Diligence is not grim. I really want you to know this. You have seen that if you get too grim, if you get too tight, you get, you get washed away, you get locked out of being able to collect and unify your mind. So diligence is not grim. It's not grim in doing concentration practice. It's not grim in doing mindfulness practice. It's just diligent. Diligent uh, could be understood in terms of the context of his time, the Buddha's time, in terms of the tapas or the the asceticism of his time. Uh, uh, most of the the people that were practicing uh, on their own were doing some sort of extreme body asceticism, as he did for a while. But what he discovered was this, this asceticism of the mind, this kind of uh, discipline of the mind was the best kind of uh, asceticism. It was the middle way of asceticism. It was not indulgent, but it wasn't manifesting into the body and just creating additional suffering. It was using this, this diligence of the mind. So that's one thing about diligence in both concentration practice and mindfulness practice, that it's not grim. And the other is that the very uh, offering that it matters if you're diligent is actually good news. The Buddha is saying that you can 
affect your life, that you can find freedom from suffering, from grasping, that there is an ease and joy that you can have power to bring about, that you are empowered, that you have this capacity to be empowered. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any difference. If it was all fatalistic, why would you bother to be diligent? And much of the teaching, thinking at his time was that it was all fatalistic. So it was all preordained and there wasn't anything you could do. And sometimes, even now, uh, karma gets taught in such a way that it leads us to a kind of fatalistic thinking. And fatalism is ultimately nihilism. And uh, the Buddha stressed over and over again that he was neither a nihilist nor an eternalist. So, uh, much good news in this emphasis on the diligence. So, we use in our mindfulness practice the concentration, we use mindfulness, we use this clear knowing, we use diligence. But why? Why would we choose to abandon the bliss states? Those of you who've been lucky enough to have experienced some of them. <laughs> why would we choose to give up the sukha, the sweetness, this, uh, this uh, contentment of, that comes with a successful concentration practice in terms of this, uh, achieving any of that. Why would we choose to give that up and open to mindfulness practice? Mm. When in mindfulness practice we're opening to the dukkha of life. Why would we swap sukha for dukkha? And it's not a complete swap, I want to say that. But why would we even think about that? The first time I ever went to a retreat, I, it was in 1983, and I had, by that point, had 11 or 12 years of practicing Raja Yoga, which in the way that I was taught involved a lot of pranayama, a lot of breath control, and then a kind of meditation from which there would arise a lot of bliss. So I go off to this retreat up in Barry, Massachusetts, get there late because I'm, I'm, I'm working at the office to the very last minute and of course then get caught in all sorts of traffic. And I get there and um, I've missed the opening. <laughs> and um, uh, it turns out that they've left me a note on the bulletin board that says, uh, you're late, <laughs> your room is such and such, it's in the gym. And uh, everybody here will remember that old gym? You remember that, Steve? And, and so I go downstairs, now this is in February, I go downstairs where they tell me to go to the gym, and it turns out that a pipe is broken. And so there's, oh, uh, I don't know, quarter of an inch, half inch of water on the floor. So. <laughs> Uh, and, and, it, and there's not a room, it's just this open room with these partitions in between that we, have to, we all have to live with. And there's only one other person there, in this, so there's this vast room and there's only two of us in the flood. And so to take off, my, I had to sit on my bed to take off my shoes and put them in the windowsill <laughs> and slept in this dampness. So now this is not exactly what I've been used to in my years of going to the ashram. At the ashram, we would sometimes, uh, the water would stop flowing or the electricity would go out, but I never had to sleep in a flood. <laughs> so I go, okay, I don't quite understand all of this and I don't know why somebody's not telling me this because in, in the ashram we didn't practice silence like we're doing on this retreat and all retreats. So then the next morning I, I follow the schedule and have the early morning sit, there's, and, and I do my regular practice and so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm controlling my breath and then I'm coming to this feeling of uh, a, a little bit of peace. Not a whole lot, but a little bit of peace. <laughs> Still a little upset about this water, right? And then we have breakfast and then we come back and we have the instruction sit. And the first thing the teacher says is, in no way control your breath. <laughs> and I think, what? <laughs> Don't you know anything? That if you don't control your breath, you won't be able to calm the mind. You won't have this sense of well-being arise. And so, well, okay. And then he said, uh, uh, 
you know, once you anchor on the breath, but don't control it. And then if something arises, direct your attention towards what's arising. I was going, why in the world would you do that? <laughs> this makes no sense whatsoever. What's wrong with these people? What have I gotten myself into? And the whole retreat was that way. Absolutely miserable. I, I, I was not simpatico with the teacher in the least. And um, there were endless secondary and tertiary issues. And because I, but I had come from this tapas, this asceticism, that it didn't occur to me to complain about sleeping, you know, in a flooded room. And then it turned out that somebody had not come to the retreat and there was an empty room <laughs> the whole time. And that if I had complained, they would have moved me. But there you go. The advantage of all of that, and there was an advantage, <laughs> is that I, I brought to this experience a willingness to be with the experience. Because of my, uh, my 11 years of previous discipline of practice, I was willing to meet the conditions that were presented. I wasn't happy about it. I had lots of views and opinions about it, many of which I still think were correct. <laughs> but nonetheless, I was willing to be with the conditions. I left that retreat very dissatisfied with Vipassana, and yet there was something I couldn't discard. There was some feeling that I couldn't name at all, but there was something that interested me. I did a couple more retreats, still not connecting with the teachers, still unhappy about uh, not controlling the breath and letting your mind go where it goes and so forth. But, and, uh, and I still couldn't name it, but there was still this feeling. Finally, I did connect with teachers and I started to understand what it was. And that was that I, that I was finding something I hadn't found in my other practice. And that was this willingness to be with the dukkha, that to go through the dukkha as a way. And I had been dissatisfied with my other practice, not because of what happened when I was practicing it, but because it didn't manifest sufficiently in my daily life. It wasn't bringing the kind of freedom, the sense of well-being that, uh, that I was searching for. And that's, so that's the only reason I had come to this practice. And so, um, so uh, I, in, in my intuition, I had felt what this practice had to offer, even under circumstances which should have driven me away. Um, uh, Ajahn Chah uh, uh, puts this so beautifully about what this practice of mindfulness offers. And he, he says, I, I want to make that larger, the whole practice of Vipassana, the insight practice. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering. Anyone in here not know that kind of suffering? <laughs> there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to the end of suffering. That was what I was being offered. Not well articulated, not uh, handled so well, but nonetheless, it, it was the Dharma. The Dharma's always good, even if it's not in favorable circumstances. I didn't know that then, but I was feeling it then, that the Dharma's always good. It's always liberating, even under... I mean, my mind was filled with turmoil, that whole first retreat. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, 
you will surely continue to experience the first. I call the book uh, Dancing with Life because to me that is what the Dharma offers is a way to dance with life. This life, just as it is, just as I am, just as your life is, just as you are. This, uh, this way to uh, relate through that second kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering, that allows you to dance with life rather than being victimized by life, being made afraid of by life, being collapsed by life, being resentful of life, being caught in longing by life. But no, to be able to move with it, to dance with it in all of its positive and its negative ways. So this is why we would abandon the bliss of concentration, the sukha of concentration, in order to have the uh, arisal of uh, uh, the arising of insight, personal insight, uh, what we might call archetypal or collective insight, insight of, uh, that relates to us as a whole, the, the general components, and then the, the Buddhist insight about the true nature of things. All three kinds of insight arise through being willing to be with life. The ultimate teaching of that was the Buddha's first teaching that uh, has been talked about already, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which is really what I wrote about, is, is, this, is this meeting of life, how to meet life. And it starts with meeting life as life is, acknowledging how life is. In that sense, you could understand the Buddha as being the first existentialist, long before Sartre and all those people. But the difference is, unlike Sartre who wrote, there, there is no exit, the Buddha understood there was an exit. He found the exit. The existential dilemma of that we, uh, that we, are, uh, we can't control our experience, that we can't separate the pain from the pleasure, the existential experience that all that we care about gets old, gets sick, dies, that we ourselves are fragile at every point along the way, and we get old and sick and die. So this, this is an existential dilemma, being uh, born with consciousness in this particular realm that we are in. It's an existential dilemma. It's just, enough, it's just enough pleasure to want us to stay in it, and it's, it's, there's enough pleasantness to reflect on it. The Buddha re, uh, referred to it over and over again as the most fortunate of births of any realm. And yet there's so much pain, existential, both the physical pain of life, and, but then all this pain of everything changing, you can never control it, and that there's not a, there's not a there there in it in the end that... Uh, that it's, it's like, well, this is a dilemma. And it's an existential dilemma. It's, it's the dilemma right now. You may have a belief system that you embrace to escape from that dilemma, to not face it. But the dilemma is a priori to any belief system. It's the way it is. And the Buddha uh, offers a way out of, of that dilemma, a way to relate to that dilemma so that we're not swamped by it. So he was an existentialist in that way. And he was also, through mindfulness, through the Satipatthana, he was a phenomenologist. So in our recent, uh, the end of last century, phenomenology was this great um, uh, craze, like something newly had been discovered. But the Buddha was deconstructing experience over 25, almost 2,600 years ago now. He was deconstructing experience into its component parts and seeing its universal nature and its, uh, how its interdependent nature. Just amazing that that's true. When we choose mindfulness practice, we're choosing to have that empowerment of being with things the way they are, knowing how things are, that existential empowerment, and to be able to deconstruct our own experience in this phenomenological way. Again, that uh, makes, uh, that reveals its true nature so it is not so oppressive to us, so that we're not weighed down by it. So that there is, in fact, this uh, sense of having uh, a sense of joy and meaning in our lives just 
as they are with all of their uncertainty and their challenges and so forth. So this is, this is why we choose to go to dukkha, to uh, understand dukkha in its larger context. It gets translated as suffering, but a much larger context of unsatisfactoriness, of unreliableness, that this realm, this realm that we would, we had all want to be happy. The Buddha said that we're all united in our desire to be happy. But in this realm, we have these, there's this uncertainty in it at all times. There is this unreliability. Even when we've got something the way we would have it be, it changes or we change or we lose interest in it. And there's this kind of stress of meeting this realm. There's, it's stressful. One of the things that you discover in concentration as you explore these jhana factors, that just staying present has a certain amount of stress. Just that rubbing against us, connecting to reality, there's stress, there's friction in that. The mind is burning. And then even if piti is arising, this great rapture, as you get really still, you realize, wow, even that's got a kind of dukkha to it. It's, it's, uh, it's rough. It's not, it's not that soothing to the mind when the, and the mind's most subtle state. And then amazingly still, even the sukha, which is, first you go, wow, this is it. This, I, this is it. I want this all the time. You get more still and more still. And then you realize that sukha is actually kind of rough. It's a kind of, it's, the mind's not really unperturbed when there's sukha. And, and so you, you realize for yourself that in this realm of, of things, of ever-changing things, there's, there's, it, it's, it's stressful. It's always stressful. The Buddha said the eye is burning, the ear is burning, all the sense gates are burning. What? They're burning. There's this friction to meeting the moment. And, and, it's all, and then there's that, the friction of that's fed by the fire of our, of our greed, of our... Uh, of our aversion, of our delusion. And so you, you, as you turn to mindfulness, you start to experience all of this. When you have collected and unified your mind to the degree that you have on this retreat, no matter uh, how you evaluate that, you're all, as again we've said more than once, you're all more uh, collected and unified in your mind than you realize. We see it in the interview, and we talk about that in terms of the difference between a Vipassana retreat and, and a concentration retreat. You, you have collected and unified your mind. When you bring that collected and unified mind to the practice of mindfulness, you're, 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 uh, uh, you've got this, the advantage of this calm, of this stillness to work with. And thus, the, the, uh, the quote from Ajahn Chah, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. So you bring, the, you bring with it this collected and unified mind, this sheltered mind that can let things take their natural course. You can just mindfully be with what is. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. So there you are. You've moved into this practice of mindfulness with the momentum of your collected and unified mind. You can choose to do that on this retreat, or you, can, uh, you may not choose. You may choose to just keep building that collected unified mind. But you're learning how to do this in future retreats. You're empowering yourself for going on in your journey of knowing the Four Noble Truths for yourself. Sati, or... Uh, Mindfulness uh, uh, is um, uh, the, the definition I like best of it is this combination of remembering or recollecting. So like you're remembering to be with your breath, right? That's the mindfulness aspect of concentration. If you don't remember, if you can't recollect that this is your intention, you won't do it. You'll go off into your planning or something. So this uh, uh, remembering, attending, and then this idea of standing near, standing near. 
so that, that, that you are with your experience when you're practicing mindfulness. You're willing to uh, go with whatever experience is arising and stand near it. So you're willing to be with your own life. You're willing to meet your life without demanding it being otherwise. Just temporarily, <laughs> you'll get lost and whine and feel sorry for yourself, but in many moment, you're willing to just be with your, your experience as it's arising, the predominant experience. And in that willingness, you've also brought this concentration, this calm and so forth, you can clearly see. And you have the, the uh, momentum of your diligence. So you can really meet your experience. That's exciting. That's empowering. Uh, when I teach mindfulness, I uh, uh, refer to it as this, uh, this uh, connecting, that it requires this connecting and the sustaining. And then uh, the fully receiving of the experience. And then the investigation. And then having the equanimity so that one doesn't get uh, swept over by it, that there's a certain dispassion. Even though you may be really feeling something very sad or, or very uh, 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 tender or very exciting, you don't get so swept away that you get lost in the story. Fully receiving is why we do metta. Life is tough. It's a challenge. This existential dilemma alone is enough to like uh, overwhelm us. But all the specifics of our life, if we do not have these qualities of the Brahma-Viharas, the loving-kindness, the compassion, the equanimity, if we don't have these qualities to fully receive our experience is very difficult. And so standing near means fully receiving it. So it's not uh, in the... Uh, uh, the regular untrained mind actually turns a little bit from experience and doesn't really fully receive it. Ironically, even if it's a, a pleasant experience, it often does that. Why? Because the next moment might be unpleasant. Or if you stand there with it, you go, oh, this is wonderful right now, but it won't last. And so you don't want to know that, so you, you turn away a little bit. So uh, Sally was talking about nature. So you, you, you go up, uh, you hike up here somewhere, and, and you're seeing just how beautiful these hills are. And for those, that moment, you're just there in nature. And then you start thinking, you know, I should be hiking more often. I wish so-and-so was here. Why don't I do this more? <laughs> you have turned from your experience. You, instead of receiving, letting your mind collect and unify by the feeling of beauty, the feeling of peace that's there, there's this turning of the mind. We, it, we do it over and over and over and over and over and over. As we learn to be more mindful, as we bring this collected and unified experience into our mindfulness, we learn to stay longer, maybe not forever, but longer. We turn less often, we, uh, we, turn, uh, we, we, we can stay with the experience longer and we more fully receive it. Now, this is very, very useful in terms of insight. Very, very useful. But ironically, it's also very useful in relation to joy because you stay present. You can just be here now. And so if here now is great, it's really good that you can be here now, right? That's really a good thing. So the mindfulness uh, has this enhancement value for that which is uh, uh, wholesome and pleasant that arises. And likewise, when something difficult arises, when you can stay present for it, one of the things that you discover is that it changes, that it's not solid. This is very reassuring when we're going, oh no, I can't stand this, I can't stand this, this is awful. Then we discover, oh, well, I can stand it. Oh, and it, does, it changes all the time. It's not always awful. Many times my mind's thinking about something else in the midst of my saying, I can't stand this. When's the bell going to ring? My body's killing me. I've got to get up. I've got to get up. I wonder what they're having for lunch today. <laughs> oh, I can't stand it. It's every moment's torture. Oh, my, my leg, my leg, it's torture. You know, should I take a nap after lunch? <laughs> we see that it's changing, that the mind is changing. That's very reassuring. 
It's very reassuring to our nervous system, even if we don't consciously know it. Because in, in, that, in that being present for that interrupt, the mind, the, 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 the nervous system switches just for that moment because we're not being reactive. So we choose to go from sukha to dukkha for all of these reasons of freedom, of freedom, of being able to more fully participate in our lives. In order to do that, we are choosing to meet the difficult. And uh, as teachers, we all uh, bow to your courage, to your willingness to be with what's difficult in your life, to choose to be mindfully present for it. Ajahn Sumedho uh, talks about this and, uh, in terms of his own experience when he first became a monk and, and he wrote the introduction to the book and he describes this. That year, 1966, that I spent reflecting on and practicing the Four Noble Truths was the most significant and powerful year of my life. He had just become a monk and just gone off to this remote place in northern Thailand all by himself. Living alone with nothing to do, no one to talk with, nobody spoke English and he did not speak Thai. So living alone with nothing to do, no one to talk with, only one small book to read and only a beginner's experience of meditation, I could easily relate to the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. My daily life, without its usual distractions, presented me with a lifetime supply of suppressed anger and fear. For the first three months, I had to endure an almost continuous flood of hatred, rage, anger, and fear. This deluge of negativity was not at all what I was expecting. I'd been looking forward to a life of, of, of tranquility. <laughs> this willingness to uh, be with that. It requires, as he says, this uh, willingness to stand under, to, to receive that difficulty. It became apparent after several weeks of fumbling resistance to this turmoil that the only way that I could survive was to endure these emotional storms by watching them standing near. This insight arose after contemplating the first noble truth, that there is suffering. It was clear that the suffering was not due to any external circumstances because all the conditions affecting me were kind and benevolent. This suffering was created through my mental habits. Reflecting on the second insight of the first noble truth, that suffering should be understood, I found that the only way that I could understand my hatred and anger was to stand under it. In other words, to observe the feeling, the mood, and the emotional atmosphere with patient endurance. Through practicing non-resistance and paying non-critical attention to the quality of my emotional conditions, I experienced the third insight of the first noble truth, that suffering had been understood. So this willingness to meet our lives allows us to uh, reap the insights and uh, in the way uh, Ajahn Sumedho teaches the Four Noble Truths, there are 12 insights to be realized. And, this is based on the Samyutta Nikaya teaching of the Four Noble Truths. But, uh, this, so this is something that we can choose to do. But this willingness to stand under is uh, um, uh, uh, an attitude of mind. Uh, this uh, uh, Jungian analyst that's now dead, a woman named Helen Luke, who's a very wise woman. I really recommend her work to you, Helen Luke. And she describes suffering in terms of the Latin word fair, which means to bear, to bear, being willing to bear our suffering. So you could take mindfulness as this willingness to bear the suffering. And she likens it to a wagon being willing to bear a load. And she uses the analogy of to stand under like standing under a waterfall. So this, this willingness to carry the load, to be willing to, to be with our, our experience, that's the practice of mindfulness. Having a collected and unified mind brings, that, uh, brings a kind of empowerment to that. So Sumedho goes on. 
After about three months of practicing standing under my suffering, I awoke one morning to an experience of total bliss. At that moment, I did not sense any trace of negativity. Everything was touched by luminous beauty. This state lasted for five days, and I thought I was enlightened. <laughs> so all of the jhana factors were uh, present. All the seven factors of enlightenment that Steve talked about the other night about how there's this pseudo-enlightenment moment. He had all those seven factors really in balance. When the intensity of this beautiful experience diminished, I felt longing for it. I wanted to have it again, and I wanted to have it all the time. <laughs> At that point, the second noble truth that suffering is caused by attachment to desire began to interest me. <laughs> I noticed that my longing to recapture the luminous beauty I'd experienced was a result of clinging to a memory. So for the remainder of that year, my meditation practice was a continuous reminder to let loose of clinging to desire. So in meeting uh, our experience with mindfulness, we're meeting all of our experience, those moments when it's pleasant, those moments when it's unpleasant. We're meeting it with mindfulness. We're, we're willing to be there with it and see the truth of it. This is the power of, of the practice. It is the practice of insight. In your um, practice on other retreats, in, in your practice here, if you choose to open to insight for the remaining of this retreat, the way we would have you do it is slowly open to the insight practice, to the mindfulness practice. So uh, uh, tomorrow morning in, in the guided meditation, we'll spend the first part of the time uh, collecting and unifying the mind, just as we've done all along. And then at a certain point, I will invite those of you who choose to start just gradually opening to, uh, to being mindful of what is. And I'll suggest what to be mindful of at the beginning, just to, just to make this transition smooth and gentle and gradual. And if you... Uh, start getting lost, if you start losing this unity of mind, then just drop back into practicing uh, the concentration practice. Some of you will choose to stay with the concentration practice and that will be wise for you. We're not, we're not uh, promoting one versus the other. We're giving you the option. It's up to you. Uh, certainly you can work with your teacher about this but in, in, in what, what seems skillful uh, for you in this. As you start to come back to mindfulness practice from uh, this uh, cultivation of well-being, of bliss, of happiness, that's the concentration practice, you will uh, inevitably run into yourself at times. You know, there you'll be. Um, you've discovered that many of you over and over again in the concentration practice, there you were. And uh, uh, it's easy to develop an attitude about that, to have a kind of uh, the judging mind take over. This is a poem by Wendell Berry. It's called The Real Work. It may be that when we know longer what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. <laughs> the impede, impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded string, stream, I don't know why I'm having such trouble with this, the impeded stream is the one that sings. So when you run into your difficulties, watch your attitude. Rather than saying, oh, you know, you're having your judging mind take over and label you incompetent, lazy, a slacker, whatever it is. But to go, oh, this is, this is this, this, these impediments, this, this hindrances that arise in the mind, they're making the song of this moment. This is the rocks of, in my life that I'm passing over right now. 
And so this is the song of my life. And I can attend to it. I can be with it, with loving kindness, with compassion, with the mindfulness, with this collected and unified mind. In order to do that, we uh, remember over and over again that we approach our moment with don't know mind. Uh, should I be doing mindfulness practice? Don't know. Is my mind collected and unified? Don't know. Am I doing, am I being with this moment and with mindfulness in the right way? Don't know. Endless humility in this practice. When we remember, when we're mindful that we don't know, it so relieves us. Because this ego mind takes over and thinks it's supposed to know. And it's good intentions, but it's not, uh, it's not helpful. Because the truth is, mostly we don't know. We don't know. And so when we, when we, when we uh, acknowledge not knowing, this beginner's mind, we can settle back into resting into our experience, even if it's a difficult experience. Whoa, here I am being mindful of this, and it's really knocking me around every which way. Wow, I don't really know what to do here. Mm. So maybe I should abandon the mindfulness, go back to the thing, or maybe I need to just go back to the breath temporarily. We don't know. So we, 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 we dance with life as best we can, not thinking we're supposed to be able to get it right. And in that more relaxed state, the mind stays more collected and unified, and in fact, we can dance with life better. Our intuitive knowing about what to do gets to come into play because we directly see what's true and that intuition that's there in our Buddha nature arises to start to respond to it. When we, when we uh, combine the concentration with the mindfulness and both are, uh, have a certain degree of strength, they don't have to be the most strong you've had, but there's some collected in unification of the mind and there's some mindfulness, then we really are able to meet the moments of our lives as best we're able. T.S. Eliot puts it in a very beautiful way, and I'd like to end with the way that he states it. the wrong page number written down. Referring back to the stillness of Ajahn Chah, of this uh, quiet being with the dukkha even, of the standing under. Neither from nor towards at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. Except for the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. The dance, this, this, uh, this moment to moment stream of our lives, this moment is different right now. Here's another moment. It's different than that moment. That other moment's gone. Another moment, it's gone. It's just now, just now, just now, over and over again. This is the, this is the dance of our lives. How to be present for that is through the stillness that we've practiced. So let's sit together for a moment. There are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. 
If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Thank you for your kind attention. Time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.